Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, a verse here that I would like to begin with. We're going to spend another week in Isaiah, as it is a long book and also one of my favorite books, and I can't pass up an opportunity to give you the unfolding, the overview of the whole book, something we haven't done with every book that we've gone through. We've mostly just talked about the themes and the outline and the purpose, and we've pretty much done that. But I want to spend another week here in Isaiah. Because I'm so familiar with the book and have taught through the book, it's a great opportunity for me to review from previous studies and to introduce some of you to more that is in this amazing book. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to look at verses 10 through 12 there as an introduction this morning. It says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here we are told that the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah, when they wrote about the coming of Christ and his sufferings and glories, which Isaiah writes more about that than any other Old Testament prophet, that they were not serving themselves and their own generation because they would never see the fulfillment of those prophecies. But instead, they were serving those who would come to be called Christians, those who would believe the writings of the prophets, that the plan of God was that the coming Messiah, the son of David, would save not only the people of Israel, but would send a salvation out to all of us among the nations as well. And so, if God wrote down this book of Isaiah 700 years before Christ, 2,700 years before many of us were born, then we should let the prophet serve us. If God wrote this for us, then we need to read what God has written for us. That's been the whole point of our Old Testament survey, is to encourage you and to equip you to read the Old Testament scriptures something that many Christians, sadly, do not do. And we are much poorer in our faith because of that. And so, as our Old Testament survey has taken us to the book of Isaiah, I want to share with you a quotation from one of my favorite Bible commentators, one of my favorite Bible teachers, named H.A. Ironside. Ironside taught through many books of the Bible, like we do here in our church, and as he was finishing up his ministry, he preached the book of Isaiah. It was the last book that he preached before his death in 1952. And this is what he writes in his introduction to Isaiah as he published books based upon all of his sermons. Many professing Christians pay literal, literal, little, there we go, little or no attention to the prophetic word. But in neglecting that which formed so large a part of the Holy Scriptures, they wrong their own souls and dishonor him who gave his word for our edification and comfort. It continues. The real value of prophecy, like Isaiah, is that it occupies us with a person, not merely with events. That person is our Lord Jesus Christ, who came once to suffer, and is coming again to reign. Of both these advents, Isaiah treats, and that in a way more plain and full than do any of the other Old Testament seers. So, with my exhortation, with Ironside's exhortation, I hope that as you are coming through your Old Testament survey, that you will certainly make time to carefully read the prophecies of Isaiah. So let's turn back to Isaiah Chapter 7, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Now I'll remind you of what we said last week and the week before, that Isaiah is the book that unites the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here I pulled out some of my old slides from when we were preaching through Isaiah in the pulpit a number of years ago. 
And you've got a picture of what could be Mount Sinai. We're not exactly sure of which location is Mount Sinai, but here's one of the possible mountains that are identified as that. And then here, Mount Calvary. Now, of course, that's not actually Mount Calvary, I don't think, but it gets the point across that between the old covenant given at Mount Sinai and the new covenant instituted in the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Mount Calvary stands Isaiah. And he ties these two together in a whole complete way, more than any other book of the Bible. So you've got this sweeping panoramic of salvation history in the book of Isaiah, if you can understand it. It's not an easy book to understand. It's a challenging book, and it's one that will test us to find out whether or not we've been paying attention to what God has been saying up to this point. You don't just dive into Isaiah You've got to have come to Isaiah with the understanding that Moses gave you, with the history that Judges and Samuel and Kings and Joshua, that all of that leads up to being able to understand the book of Isaiah. And it's still going to take some work when studying a book like Isaiah. And that's why God gives teachers to the church so that we can help you to be able to understand the things that God has given to us in the prophets like Isaiah. So let's do a little bit more of that this morning. As we talk about how important Isaiah is in understanding the whole Bible, that's largely due to the fact that the New Testament and Jesus make such extensive use of the book of Isaiah. I know it's kind of hard to see, but hopefully you can make this out, that this is the New Testament citations of Old Testament books. And here you see that the Pentateuch is important, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, not a lot from Numbers, and then a lot from Deuteronomy. Those first five books, if you put them all together, that'd be probably the most quotations. But then you've got Psalms, 150 chapters, and so that's a large book, and it gets quoted a lot. But then Isaiah, right there. Over 50 times Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament, and it shows you how important it is to understand the Pentateuch, understand the book of Psalms, understand Isaiah, if you're going to understand the New Testament as fulfilling these Old Testament scriptures. So that's what Isaiah does. It unites together the Old and the New Testament as no other book can. Now, as we think about the message of Isaiah then, one of the themes that we highlighted was the holiness of God. We mentioned last week, we'll remind you, that one-third of the total designations of holiness in the Old Testament one-third of all the times that God is called holy is in the book of Isaiah. So the holiness of God is really central in this book. And I asked you last week to think about what is the definition for holiness? What's the biblical definition? Could you articulate it? Could you explain it to a child in a Sunday school class? Could you explain it to your neighbor or your coworker? What does it mean that God is holy? And why is that such an important concept in the Holy Bible? Now, as you think about holiness, there are multiple aspects of it. That's why it's kind of difficult to give just a really simple definition that captures all of the different aspects of holiness. As you study through Isaiah and you look at holiness in all of its context, you see that it has to do with the transcendence of God that God is above all, that he's over all, that he is separate from his creation and he controls his creation, that transcendence of God. Another key aspect of holiness that you see in the book is the emphasis then on God's judgment, that because God is morally perfect and the world is sinful and in rebellion against God, his holiness leads to judgment. But not only does his holiness lead to judgment, but his holiness also produces salvation. So this transcendence of God, his separation from this world and all the evil that is in it, his judgment of sin, but also his salvation, it's, it's all flowing out of his holy character. And so I like the way that one Bible teacher put it. He said this, the whole book of Isaiah, all the prophecies, all of the poems, all of the history that is here, the whole book it is an explanation of this basic problem, that God's holiness poses an awesome threat to unworthy, careless, rejecting, unresponsive people. 
People are unworthy of God. They're careless about God. They reject God. They're not responsive to God. And God's holiness is this awesome threat to such people of destruction and judgment. And then the book shows the lengths to which the Holy One will go to deal with sin, to reclaim the sinner, and create a righteous people for himself. And so you really see how the whole message of the Bible is contained in that. It's really the gospel before the gospels. Our sin, God's holiness, God's salvation, and his plan for that in Jesus Christ. It's all right here. All right, so as we think about the whole story of Isaiah, you see here creation, fall, redemption, recreation. This is the the normal outline ideologically, thematically of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and the new creation. Well, that all breaks down into this history Underneath the thematic outline, you've got the historical outline of the beginnings of the world, the people of Israel, their deliverance from Egypt, the giving of the law, the inheriting of the land, the establishing of the kingdom, the division of the kingdom, the exile, the return, a period of silence, and then the life of Jesus, the establishment of the church, the return of Christ, and the new heavens and the new earth. So the details of the story, the people, the places, the things that are happening, the history is all here underneath the idea of redemption and recreation, all of this history in in real time and space that is taking place. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is the revelation of God's redemption through the history of God's people. And it centers in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we find in the book of Isaiah. It shows us the whole story. It talks about the beginning. It talks about Israel. It talks about the future new heavens and the new earth. It talks about the coming of Christ. It talks about the salvation of the nations. It's all contained here in this book, both the thematic part and also the persons and places. It makes it concrete for us. And so when you think about understanding Isaiah, it's the same as understanding the Bible. You have to understand the history in order to understand the concepts. God teaches us the concepts through the history. And so this is initially difficult for us because it's such a far-off time and place in history that it makes it hard for us to be able to understand the history. But if we put the work in of understanding the history, then it actually becomes a great blessing to us. Little effort, little reward. Much effort, much reward. That's life. And it's the same in spiritual things as it is in material things. You put no effort in, you don't get much reward out. You put more effort in, you're going to get more reward. And so you have to study to show yourself approved, a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the words of Scripture. And that's not just an exhortation to pastors like me, but as our Awana Club makes all the Awana kids know, it's, it's what God wants for all of his children. That if we're going to be experts in any science, let it be the science of knowing God, understanding God, understanding his revelation of himself through history. That's the exhortation here about the importance of understanding Isaiah. All right, so the book seeks to answer that question. How can we, and Israel, as sinful, corrupt people, become the servants of a holy God? How can we serve a holy God when we are unholy? That's really what the book is all about. And I've got a couple of verses here that drive that point home. Remember, we read Isaiah chapter 1 as our introduction to the book, and there right at the beginning is this lament from God speaking through the prophet to the people. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Remember, they are a careless people. They are an unworthy people. They are an unresponsive people. They're more stubborn than a donkey. They are more ignorant than a donkey. And so how does God make this people become his servants? And then another one, if you're in Isaiah, back up from chapter 7 for a moment, back to Isaiah chapter 5. I'd like to read for you Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It's a very important part of the opening chapters of Isaiah. And it's a song that is recorded. It's a harvest song. It's a joyful song. And yet it has an ironic twist to it that makes it actually more of a lament. So he probably sang this during the harvest season, like we're having our harvest season now for 
farmers, harvest season is a joyful season most of the time, as long as your crops have come in. All of your work is being rewarded. And so Isaiah comes along and he's like, I've got a song for you. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleansed it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, worthless grapes, grapes that farmer can't use. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So here you've got Isaiah 5-7 in the New American Standard. That's what I was using when I was preaching this verse back in the day. And you see, he looked for justice, which in Hebrew is this word mishpat, but behold, bloodshed, mishpach. For righteousness, sedekah, but behold, a cry of distress, seyakah. So there's this poetic irony going on in the word plays that are there. And so Israel was given everything they needed to be able to produce good fruit for God. And yet they didn't produce good fruit for God. And so that's where the judgment of God comes against Israel. And that's what they experience in the exile. When first the Assyrians carry off the northern tribes and then the Babylonians carry off the southern tribes and Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the young men are killed, many are taken away into slavery. This is the reason. Because they did not produce good fruit. So... That's what we're talking about. How can a sinful, corrupt people like this become the servants of God? I mean, God did everything for them, and they still failed. So what's left to do? What's the hope? What's the solution to this intractable problem? Jesus. And that's where Isaiah is going to take us. He is the solution to the sinfulness, the stubbornness, the ignorance, the rebellion that is in the heart of mankind that nothing else can cure. Very important. All right, so let's take a look then at some of the history. Come back to Isaiah chapter 7, one of my favorite parts of the scroll of Isaiah. And you see that Isaiah, as we looked at before the last two weeks, he lived during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And you've got the dates of Uzziah's death uh, from Isaiah chapter 6, and then going down to the reign of Hezekiah. And I just put up there also for you the date for the fall of the northern kingdom. So you see that that is taking place during the reign of Ahaz. During Ahaz's reign, Assyria comes into the north, takes Samaria, deports the northern Israelites, and Ahaz then dies a few years later, and then Hezekiah has to deal with the Assyrians who are coming for his kingdom. That's the history that most of the book is written in that backdrop. And so, again, if God reveals himself through history, it's worth putting a little time and effort into understanding that history, and that includes maps and geography. And so here, you've got the kingdom of Judah, southern kingdom. Lachish is on this map. Take note of that. That'll become important later, Lachish. And Jerusalem, you see where it is situated compared to Jerusalem. And you've got the northern kingdom of Israel here, some of their key cities and then the nations surrounding. You've still got the Philistines around here. You've got Edom, Moab, Ammon, as they've been there since the beginning of Israel. You've got Aram, Damascus, also known as Syria. Damascus is the capital city. Sometimes the whole country was called by that. Sometimes it was called Aram or Syria. And you've got the Phoenicians up here. But then, creeping in on the northern border, the Assyrian Empire is coming. They're coming for Aram and Damascus, they're right there on the border. 
They're coming for Ammon. They're coming for Moab. They're coming for Israel. They're coming for Judah. And they're going to get down here to Egypt. Um, So Assyria is the looming threat. They're the power that is knocking on everyone's door. And that's the background for understanding Isaiah chapter 7 through 12. All right? So God is the God of history. The main point of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is that the God of little tiny Israel is the Lord of the nations. Now, here you've got Judah's kings and Assyria's kings, and Judah is kind of weak at this time. They've split from the north, and they've had civil wars, and they've had some bad kings and all kinds of problems, and so they're not the dominant world power that they were during Solomon's time. Assyria is growing in its power. Tiglath-Pileser is a very capable and aggressive king, and then his policies are carried on by his descendants, Shalmaneser, Sargon, and Sennacherib. Sennacherib becomes very important in the story of Isaiah. But at the time of Ahaz, it's Sargon. You see, Shalmaneser died around the same time that the Assyrians conquered northern Israel. So as you read through Isaiah 1 through 39, the point that keeps getting hammered home is that the God of Israel is Lord of the nations, and that you need to trust in the God of Israel and not fear the nations. And that's what you have here in Isaiah chapter 7. Okay? So here's the structure of Isaiah 1 through 12. Chapter 1 is this standalone introduction. Chapters 2 through 5 is judgment upon the people of Judah. Chapter 6 is Isaiah's call to ministry. And chapter 7 through 12 is Emmanuel versus Assyria. And chapter 7 through 12 is what we're going to look into a little bit more detail here as we have some time in Isaiah this morning. And then we'll move on shortly. We're not going to spend too much time here. But I want you to see Isaiah 7 through 12. This is great review. One of my favorite parts to come back to. Pick it up in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Oh no, we can't stand up to these kings of Syria and of Samaria. So here you've got what is called by one commentator, the West Palestinian Treaty Organization. So remember on the map that Syria, Damascus, was right there on the border of the Assyrian Empire at this time, and and they're worried about the Assyrians. So they make a treaty with northern Israel, with Pekah. So you've got Rezin, king of Damascus, Pekah, king of Samaria, and they make a treaty, say, hey, Let's work together against the Assyrians. We put our armies together, put our forces together. Maybe we can withstand their attack. And they want Ahaz to join them. They're like, you know, Ahaz, the king of Assyria, after he deals with us, he's coming after you. So you better join our coalition also so we can have a united front against the Assyrians. But for political reasons, Ahaz is like, nope. I don't want to join you guys. I don't think that's what's in my best interest. And so he's playing his cards and they're playing their cards. And and they say, well, if you're not going to join our West Palestinian Treaty Organization, then we're going to invade you first and we're going to get you off the throne and put someone else on the throne of Jerusalem so that now we can have this united front. And so that's what Ahaz is worried about. He's worried about Rezin and Pekah bringing their armies down to Jerusalem to depose him and put a puppet king in his place who will do what they want him to do. And so the Lord sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz and and tells him the word of the Lord. But Ahaz doesn't believe. Ahaz doesn't accept God's messenger. God doesn't accept God's word. And so therefore, uh, Ahaz does not receive the protection of God because he's not willing to put his trust in God. And that's when we have this tremendous prophecy about the coming of Emmanuel. Now, if it was closer to Christmas, maybe we'd spend a little bit more time on the Emmanuel prophecy. Maybe we'll get to that here for a Christmas Eve Sunday or something like that. 
But the manual prophecy is a prophecy of showing how we're supposed to put our trust in God and what appears to be insignificant and weak as opposed to fearing the nations who appear to be awesome and powerful. Now, the story then that unfolds from this point on after Ahaz is the story of Assyria in 824 BC. Here you see you know, them having a pretty large empire running through the Tigris and the Euphrates, Mesopotamia, but that you know, Egypt is not a part of this dark green part of their 824 kingdom, but that they're going to be moving in. They're going to be sweeping in to all of this, and over the next 150 years, they expand out, uh, and especially and capturing Egypt uh, there before too long. But notice that there's one little part of all of this civilization that is not incorporated into the Assyrian Empire, Judah. Notice it's yellow. By 671 BC, Judah is still independent, that Assyria was not able to capture Judah. And it's not because of Ahaz. Uh, Because of Ahaz, Judah suffered tremendously at the hands of the Assyrians. But it's because of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, his story, which we're going to get to a little bit later, is the story of how Judah survives against this onslaught of the king of Assyria that is first described in Isaiah 7 through 12. That because of Ahaz's unbelief and because of the sin of Israel in general, the king of Assyria is going to sweep through their land up to the very neck, up to Jerusalem itself. And that destruction by the king of Assyria is prophesied here But the salvation is also prophesied in a marvelous way. I can't get fully into the details, but it's through the Emmanuel prophecy. All right, so that's the first 12 chapters. And then, you know, as we continue to work our way through, then our next section to review and overview this morning is chapters 13 through 23. And in chapters 13 through 23, it starts off with judgment on Babylon But then after a couple of chapters on Babylon, it goes to Moab and Philistia and goes on to Damascus, where we just saw on the map and whom we were just talking about. It talks about Egypt and all of the nations around Israel in chapters 13 through 23 and ends again with a taunt against Babylon and then finally a judgment on Jerusalem. And what chapters 13 through 23, just the the bottom line after you read through and study all those chapters is, is that the glory of the nations is nothing, the scheming of the nations is nothing, the wisdom of the nations is nothing, the vision of God's nation, Israel, they have no vision, that's nothing, they're not paying any attention to God, and the wealth of the nations is nothing. And so basically not only Israel but all the nations are under God's judgment, and they are insignificant and inconsequential in comparison to the power and the wisdom of God. That's the bottom line of these chapters, which are a great study, and I enjoyed preaching them much more than I thought I would. I thought 11 chapters of preaching on the judgment of nations in the ancient world would be pretty boring, but I got a lot out of it. That brings you then to Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, and As we mentioned last week, I want to remind you, this is a miniature apocalypse. So that's why I put this picture here as I was preaching through Isaiah 24 to 27 of a ruined city, Uh, much like you see in some of our apocalyptic movies that are made today. Because in Isaiah 24 to 27, you have worldwide cataclysmic judgment. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation is about. And so... 13 through 23 was mostly judgment upon the ancient nations, although it has portents for the future day of the Lord. But then Isaiah 24 through 27 really moves forward in time to the future day of the Lord that is yet to happen, described now in the book of Revelation. So a really interesting section here in Isaiah 24 through 27. And so I want you to turn to... Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1, and it says this, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So this worldwide desolation and destruction of not only the cities, but the people that dwell in those cities, and then also verse 12 in the same chapter, notice verse 12, desolation is left in the city. 
The gates are battered into ruins, for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. So it's like there's hardly anybody left on the earth. Kind of like when you're done with the harvest, there's hardly anything left out in the field, that the cities are going to be empty. Kind of like all of our fields are empty now. This picture of global judgment, global catastrophe, it has a point, it has a purpose, and it's not the final thing that is in these chapters, but just like the book of Revelation ends with the salvation of Israel, the establishing of God's kingdom, and a new heaven and a new earth, so also Isaiah 24 through 27 ends with the redemption of Israel, which is the point of this coming worldwide cataclysm, is to judge the earth and to save Israel. Look at chapter 27. Isaiah 27, verses 1 through 6 says this. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That's an important picture there for what we see in Revelation, the dragon that lives in the sea. We'll find out more about him in the book of Revelation. In that day, now it changes here in verse 2, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So here's a, a tremendous contrast with what we read earlier about the worthless vineyard that God was very angry with and he was going to destroy it and he was going to command the clouds to rain no rain upon it because it was a worthless vineyard. But now, at the end of this worldwide cataclysm, now the people of Israel are a pleasant vineyard. Now they've been changed. And so through the wrath of God, through the judgment of God, he's going to bring about a change in the people of Israel. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. And that's what the miniature apocalypse in Isaiah 24 to 27 is all about. So if you understand your Old Testament, you should be able to understand your New Testament. And that's why it's great to read and study a book like Isaiah before you preach the book of Revelation. That's why we did preach through Isaiah in our church before we preached through Revelation. So I wanted you to see the worthless vineyard versus the vineyard that is pleasant and that God rejoices in and that is filling the whole world with fruit. That's the point. Fruit. God wants fruit. Good fruit. God will have his vineyard. And it comes about at the end of the great tribulation that Israel is saved. All right, so... Then we get into chapters 28 through 35, and we have some more oracles about Israel, their current state, that they won't listen, that Egypt is not going to help them, and yet God is not going to abandon them, and there's a purpose in God's judgment, and that a remnant will be saved. And all of that, then in chapters 28 to 35, leads up to the historical interlude in chapters 36 to 39. In Isaiah 27:10, if you're still in Isaiah 27, look at verse 10. He talks further about the coming desolation of the earth. He says, "The fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches." So, the most populous, the most fortified cities are going to be emptied. There's going to be grass growing up there and animals are going to be grazing there. And so here's some pictures of ruined cities which now are grazing land for the animals. And so those prophecies have been fulfilled and they will be fulfilled again in the future. I remember watching an apocalyptic movie a number of years ago that took place in New York after this massive depopulation event. And there's this like one guy living in New York, kind of like what it's talking about here. And he goes out and he sees these deer just uh, grazing in what used to be Times Square. And now you know, the wild animals have taken it back and all the grass is growing there. That's what this is talking about. 
that's going to happen and that people make movies about it and that it's you know, so interesting and fascinating to us. You wonder, is that God putting it in people's hearts to warn them, to let them know that we are worthy of judgment and our civilization does stand on the brink of destruction? Seems that way. That it's more warnings by God's providence of the coming worldwide cataclysm and telling people that there's no hope in anybody but in God's Savior, Jesus. All right, so the historical interlude, as I was mentioning then, in chapters 36 to 39, all right, one more verse. It's so good. The day of the Lord is what we're talking about in the miniature apocalypse, and the day of the Lord is not just important in Isaiah 24 to 27, but all throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord is key. And so Isaiah 2.11 and 2.17 are actually the same thing. It's repeated in those two verses. The pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So what's the purpose of the book of Revelation? Well, so that the pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Same theme, same purpose, same author, same Holy Spirit, all that between Isaiah and the book of Revelation. And the day of the Lord is against Israel, it's against all nations, and it's for the cause of Zion. And Jerusalem becomes very important also in the book of Revelation. So God will have his day, it's against Israel, it's against all nations, and it's for the cause of Zion. And then it's inevitable, and it's, it's threatening. And I like this verse in Isaiah 21.1, as windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes. I got some pictures of windstorms in the Negev and how it uh, sweeps in and there's nothing you can do to stop it. That's what the day of the Lord is like. As windstorms in the Negev sweep on, it comes. And as we looked then on Isaiah 27, when we think of an apocalypse, we shouldn't just think of the destroyed cities and the, the death and the war and all of that, but then we should think about what comes at the end. That God destroys the world that is in order to create the world that is to come, and that God will have his vineyard. So that's why I put these beautiful pictures of vineyards up here. This is a picture of Israel at the end of the apocalypse, that in the day of the Lord, Israel is finally going to be what God intended them to be from the very beginning, the fruitful vineyard. All right, now we're ready for Isaiah 36 through 39, where we see the contrast. As I mentioned, in Isaiah 7 through 12, Ahaz trusts in the nations, the result is destruction. In chapters 36 to 39, Hezekiah, his son, trusts in the Lord, Yahweh, and the result is salvation. And you can read about the greatest act of trust in the most desperate hour for the people of God in Isaiah 36 and 37. And it's an awesome story that is recorded not only in Isaiah, but also in 2 Kings. And when God repeats things, it's because it's very important and we should read it and be well familiar with what it means to trust in the Lord. And God shows us, not just he doesn't just write about it in theory, but he shows us what it looks like in practice, in history. And he reveals the nature of saving faith in Hezekiah's actions. All right? So, when we look at chapters 13 through 35, as I said, the God of Israel is Lord of the nations. Hezekiah learns that. Ahaz did not know that. And that is the key. Now, do you have faith that the God of Israel is Lord of all? Jesus is Lord is the most basic way of sharing the truth of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the nations. So what happens then as a result of Ahaz not trusting in the Lord is that Sennacherib and the Assyrians invade Judah. And we have some amazing archaeological remnants that record this invasion. And this is what Sennacherib had written on his prism, as this hexagonal object is called, writing on each side of the, of the hexagon, the prism. And he writes about his conquests. And writing about his conquest of Judah, he says, I took 46 of his strong fenced cities, speaking of Hezekiah, his being the king of Judah, and of the smaller towns which were scattered about, I took and plundered a countless number. From these places I took and carried off 200,156 persons. You appreciate the exact accounting of the Assyrians as they carried off captives. 200,156. Now that was a lot of people back then. 
you know, we didn't have cities of in 10 million people like we do now. The largest city during the time of the New Testament was 1 million people, and the second largest city was like 300,000. So 200,000 is no small amount of the people of Israel carried off in that invasion. And 46 of his walled cities, or fenced cities, fortified cities, and that, that's pretty amazing. But, as we read through, he didn't take Jerusalem. Nowhere does the king of Assyria record his defeat of Jerusalem because he didn't defeat Jerusalem. And you can read about why he didn't defeat Jerusalem in Isaiah 35 and 36. But instead of celebrating his victory over Jerusalem, what did Sennacherib celebrate? Well, he celebrated his victory at Lachish. Why? We uncovered this relief of Sennacherib's victory at Lachish. His throne room was surrounded by this. This is from his throne room. What he wanted on his walls around his throne was his defeat of Israel at Lachish. But Lachish was not a capital city. It was a fortified city. It was an important city. But it wasn't Jerusalem. And you'd think, if you're going to record some of your military victories to be in your throne room, why would you choose an insignificant city like Lachish? Relatively insignificant. Well, it's because he was licking his wounds, trying to make himself feel better about being defeated at Jerusalem. He's like, well, we really got him at Lachish. Let's remember Lachish. That was great. Uh, let's not talk about Jerusalem. We don't want to remember what happened there. But God wrote it down, and he wants everyone to remember what happened at Jerusalem. All right, so then chapters 38 and 39 are kind of a letdown after chapters 36 and 37, because here we see Hezekiah welcoming the envoys from Babylon. You can read about how even a great king with great faith in God still did not have perfect faith in God and he was not the one who was ultimately going to save the people of Israel because by receiving the envoys from Babylon, Hezekiah got sick and the envoys from Babylon came and told him, you know, we're glad you're feeling better because they wanted to be allies with each other against Assyria. So he's still looking for allies. He's still trusting in nations a little bit. And God judges Hezekiah for that and judges Israel for that. And you can read about that in chapters 38 and 39. So even after this great act of faith and salvation, we find a letdown. And that's what then leads us to know that we need chapters 40 through 66. That there needs to be someone who is finally going to turn the hearts of Israel completely back to the Lord for a salvation that is eternal. For a salvation that gets to the deepest heart and solves the problem, not just for the king, but for all of the people themselves. And that's what Isaiah 40 through 66 is about. Now, in the last 10 minutes that we have, let's spend a little bit of time again then in this most awesome part of Isaiah. In chapters 40 through 66, I'll remind you, it falls into three parts. And the parts are divided by an interesting refrain. Come to the end of chapter 48. All right, turn forward in Isaiah to chapter 48. And the last verse in chapter 48 marks the division between the first section and the second section. And it says this, Isaiah 48:22, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. United Nations need to remember, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Mankind will never bring an end to war. Mankind will never solve the conflict between nations or in families or even the conflict that's in the human heart itself. There is no peace, personal, social, national, for the wicked. That sin, wickedness, is what brings the turmoil and the strife. And the only solution is to deal with the heart of sin. There's no peace for the wicked. Now, I point that out because, again, when you get to the end of chapter 57, the second section ends with the exact same verse, the exact same words. Come to chapter 57 and verse 21, and you can see it for yourself. Verse 20 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so the one who's going to make people righteous 
is the one who is going to bring peace to the world. The one who restores people to God, taking away our sin and giving us a gift of divine righteousness who changes the heart of man. He's the one who's going to bring peace to the world. And there's no other way. He's the only way. Jesus is the answer for the world today. So that is the message here of Isaiah 40 through 66, and that message of hopelessness outside of Christ is punctuated, but then the focus on the hope that is in Christ is highlighted. Now, in chapters 40 through 48, where you have the book of comfort for the exiles, one of the key elements, one of the key themes in this part of the book is the folly of idolatry versus the power of God and putting your trust in him. Now, the first 39 chapters were about the nations, and the nations and their idols were kind of coterminal. that to put your trust in the nations is to put your trust in the idols. We talked about this yesterday at the men's brunch, that when people were going to war with one another, it was this people and their God against this people and their God, and that's the way war was in the ancient world. It was religious wars, because religion and culture goes hand in hand, and the clash of culture is our God versus your God. And now we you know, tend to think more like secularists, but secularism is a religion. And so if Islam is fighting against the secularists, then you still have a religious war going on, a, a war of worldviews. Our belief, our culture, our God against your belief, your culture, your God. And really it hasn't changed, even though uh, Satan kind of deceives people into thinking that it's changed. Trusting in the idols is foolish, just like trusting in the nations is foolish. And God shows the weakness of idols and demonstrates his own power in chapters 40 through 48 in a unique way. Look at chapter 41, verses 21 through 29. Isaiah 41, 21 through 29. The title for this section is called The Futility of Idols in the ESV, and their titles are usually spot on. And it says this, starting in verse 21 of chapter 41, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them and that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So here he challenges the nations and their gods to say, show that you are actually real. Show that, that you can do something. And what should a God be able to do? Well, a God should be able to tell what's going to happen in the future and bring it to pass. That's how you know that there's actually a power there. There's actually a person there. That it's not just some empty, made-up thing. And so God says, all right, nations, here's your chance. Bring forth your proof. Bring forth your evidence that your gods are real, that they can do something. And, of course, they can't. But notice verse 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning, that we might know? And beforehand, that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among them, there is no counselor. And when I ask, there's no one who gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are emptiness and wind. And so God says, I will tell you what's going to happen, and it will come to pass exactly as I have said. And this leads us to the Cyrus prophecies. And Cyrus is mentioned by name in these chapters as the one who is going to restore the people of Israel, that this is all according to God's plan. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. Now, Isaiah is writing over a hundred years before Cyrus was ever born. And he names the one who is going to restore the people of Israel to their land. And so this was powerful proof during the return from the exile that the God of Israel is Lord of the nations. 
And so, of course, scholars today say, well, obviously Isaiah couldn't have predicted that Cyrus was going to be the one to restore Israel from their captivity, and so this must have been inserted later. And of course they're going to say that. But God also in these chapters announces a second deliverer, the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is going to be a greater deliverer. He's not just a political deliverer, but he's a spiritual deliverer. And that servant of the Lord, he comes 700 years later. And so there's the near prophecy to demonstrate to everyone that God is God and people living during that time can know to listen to Isaiah. And then there's the long-term prophecy that demonstrates for those who in our time would be doubtful. And we have copies of Isaiah that are before Jesus Christ was born. So there's no doubt that this has predicted the coming of the Messiah, just as he predicted the coming of Cyrus. So in 540, coming here to the end of the Babylonian Empire, and Babylon is getting weaker, the Persian Empire is getting stronger, and they're knocking on Babylon's door. Egypt has become independent again after Assyria was defeated by the Babylonians. Then the Medes and the Persians, Media, Persia, they have Cyrus the Great who comes in defeats the Babylonians and then sends all of the captives of the Assyrians and the Babylonians back to their ancestral homelands. So that is what is happening far off from Isaiah's time, 200 years after Isaiah, and yet it's written here so that we can know that God is Lord of the nations and that he's real. Here's Cyrus's tomb, Cyrus the Great. His tomb is still with us to this day. Here's an artist's rendition of what it might have looked like originally. The rest of it's all fallen away, and what we're left with is just those rocks. But yeah, Cyrus, one of the most important men in history, and one of the most powerful prophecies in history in the book where it names him and what he's going to do. And that is all done so that we can then put our trust in the Savior who God predicts in the servant, the servant of the Lord. And here in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 53, you've got these four poems called Songs for Alliterative Purposes about the servant and the salvation that is going to happen through the servant. So that is an overview of the entire book of Isaiah once again uh, for you, uh, for your edification, for our reminder, and for your encouragement to be not only reading the book, but also to be sharing with others the good news that we know where hope lies. We know what the solution to the world's problems are. We know where peace can be found, personally, nationally, internationally. And we want to share that message of good news with others so that they might be ready when the Prince of Peace returns.